second episode of the game podcast i'm your host jerry thompson with me are michael majors and andrew brown uh between the three of us we are two golden urns and one platinum imperion this is kind of the place to go if you want to talk about some high level super competitive magic gathering strategy so last weekend uh there were two standard grand prix in manchester and minneapolis and awkwardly enough the three of us were not in attendance of either so uh andrew what happened well, you know, um, I'm at 35 points. Again, I'd have to get series of X and threes to really get anywhere. Plus, you know, my game just came out. Good time to relax. So, you know, more Memorial Day weekend, I guess, just took a weekend off. Majors? Uh, look, man, I, I have no good excuse. I uh, just... <laughs> Very similar to last week, Michael Majors. You, you can call it however you see it. But a friend of mine came to town to visit. And, you know, I haven't actually spent many weekends in Roanoke, Virginia since moving here. So that was kind of a nice change of pace. Okay. Well, for me personally, I was kind of doing something. I was playing in a regional PTQ. I guess that's kind of my excuse. But I'm also in a similar spot to Andrew where I have 30 pro points and all of my Grand Prix slots are filled up. My worst finish is a two. And this is the end of the season, basically. I mean, like the, the last pro tour is about to happen. And that's basically where... Everyone earns like all their levels and those get locked in for the next year. So I have 30 points. Three from the Pro Tour will get me 33, which gets me exactly gold. And I can't really improve on that that much. Like if I go to a Grand Prix and maybe win it or something, I'm like plus six points. And then I only need to like top 16 a Pro Tour instead of top eight to hit platinum or whatever. But I'm not really super worried about that. I am completely content with my gold finish and I'm kind of just fine locking that in. And I think that's pretty reasonable. So at these Grand Prix, kind of weird, or I guess the actual plural is Grand Prix. I'm just going to say Grand Prix. So Green White Tokens is like this thing that is suddenly back. It won both tournaments, which is just bizarre to me because for the couple weeks after the Pro Tour, it was doing pretty well. And then it just kind of like fell off. Like the four color Cryptolith right deck showed up. Uh, I blame Andrew Brown for that. Thank you. East West Bowl. Yeah, you're welcome. I guess... The feeling there was that that deck had a good green-white matchup, like green-white was not prepared to deal with that deck, and most people just wanted to latch onto it because it was this sweet new thing, and I guess that everyone at that point kind of felt that like green-white tokens couldn't really compete in that metagame, and it just kind of like fell off, but now it's just back, and I'm baffled. Is it fair for you to even say that it like fell off? There hasn't even been like standard tournaments really in between, you know, I mean, Seth Manfield won you know, a Grand Prix with black-white control and kind of put that on the map. But there hasn't been, like, this strong progression where green-white tokens actually disappear. Well, GP New York, in my mind, was kind of that tournament where it's, like, obviously, like, you and Sigris did really well, right? I think you were the only people in top eight playing it. Past that, like, at the mocks, for example, like, I've, seven of those decks were, were Cryptothrites out of the 13. I realize that's, like, a super small sample size, like, small tournament. But even just from there, like, no one was really talking about green-white tokens at all, and everyone was talking about uh, the Cryptolith rights stacks, and then looking at the Magic Online results. And, like, you know, those are kind of skewed, too, because if I look at, like, league results, those are just, like, a random selection of the 5-0 decks. You know, like, they don't post every single deck that goes 5-0, so it is entirely possible that it's just, like, they posted a large amount of Cryptolith right decks just randomly and didn't actually post any green-white decks, but it also just seemed like green-white was not that popular. I mean, that might be the case, but if if we kind of think that there's this progression where Cryptolith writes and, you know, it's starting to evolve rapidly between, like, Bant with, like, no combo and four color and, like, obviously gray-black aristocrats has kind of fallen off the map, but if, if people think that these rights decks are, you know, the best, then it would make sense for them to move towards Seth Manfield's black-white control list, which is kind of what we saw a bunch of pros talk about and write about this week. And then if you're just trying to, you know, cast a bunch of languages and play some Planeswalkers and kind of compete on the battlefield that way, then green-white tokens is very powerful because it has, like, the most, like, sticky, aggressive, resilient elements. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people moved away from, like, Evolutionary Elite, but even just, like, Nissive Voices in a car plus Gideon Allies in a car and Hangerback Walker and Archangel Addison are, are very difficult for these control decks to go toe-to-toe with. Yeah, moving away from Leap, I think, is a mistake, but, you know, maybe we'll talk about green-white in-depth a little bit later, I don't know. But, Andrew, you, you are the resident control player, I think, 
Michael and I back in our heyday may have liked to play control, but now we just want to kill people, but you're still clinging to that. So tell, <laughs> tell me about these control decks, like primarily just like Grixis and White Black. Well, the White Black deck, I think it has a great matchup against the Cryptolith Right deck, just because it has a bunch of removal. It can deal with the early barrage of Duskwatch Recruiter into Eldrazi Displacer. Like that's not essentially really good against them, but the, I think the best part about the black-white deck is, again, I talked about it last week, but that it can turn the game really fast, you know, with Secure and Gideon. So once you, like, kind of mitigate the early threats and you keep them from getting off the ground with Duskwatcher Cryptolith, right, you can just land a big Secure, Gideon Emblem, attack them for a bazillion, and they can't really deal with that. Yeah, and Grixis kind of does the same thing too, right? Like, they, like these control decks are kind of aggressively slanted. Yeah, uh, the Grixis decks leans on Jace, though. I don't think it's that good in the metagame right now. But once you get up to the whole Goblin Dark Dwellers, Kolagon's Command, Chandra, kind of like repetitive loop of you discard, kill something, just kind of gum up the board, wrath the board. And I think that the Grixis deck kind of has an advantage over the Cryptolithrite deck. Okay. From my experience playing stuff like Ramp, it's like, if they were playing like a normal blue control deck or whatever, where they're just not pressuring you and eventually you just get to like Ulamog them or whatever, then those matchups are really good. But these control decks are like actually pretty scary because they do pressure you. And I feel like it's not a coincidence that these are the two control decks that are playable now. Yeah, Chandra offers a pretty quick clock and paired with all of the discard, like transgress you, flip chase, flashback transgress. Like it's a real problem for the ramp decks. They can't really get off the ground. I don't know. I'm still baffled by this green-white token thing. Like, I'm looking at the the top 100 archetype breakdown uh, going into day two. Uh, this is just, like, a, a feature that they post for basically all the Grand Prix now rather than posting the entire day two metagame breakdown of, like, 600 people. They just look at the, the top 100 decks in the standings. And for Minneapolis, green-white tokens has 17 players. In Manchester, green-white tokens has 20. And also worth noting, in Manchester, there are 18 Naya midrange decks. Uh, in addition to the green-white tokens deck. So, like, green-white whatever mid-range is just huge again. And, again, I'm confused. I don't feel like it was ever this prevalent. If if you just are able to identify that, you know, some of the best cards in the format are you know, these, these sticky planeswalkers, like, getting on the battlefield is so important. I don't know, Hiri the Harbinger, maybe we could associate that as being, like, the, the hot new thing, so people want to play with that, so they're interested in playing this Naya version. Uh, even though there was a, a huge disparity between GP Manchester and GP Minneapolis with people playing I Midrange, mean, I believe there were five in, in uh, excuse me, Minneapolis, which is a, a huge disparity. But it, it's kind of the same idea where if people think that, you know, these control decks are really popular or they're going to be more popular, nobody's really interested in just playing like these traditional long games like you guys touched upon. And I think Cletus Trader Get is, is a big thing that we haven't talked about yet as far as why those control decks are good because they're able to kind of leverage their removal properly and kind of start this like snowball form of aggression where they're able to stop their opponent from doing anything relevant. And so if you're trying to compete with those kinds of cards and traditional spot removal, then Planeswalkers are probably one of the best ways to do it. The other thing that kind of weirds me out is that in Minneapolis, there are 11 white human decks. And this doesn't specify like mono white or blue white or whatever. I think the most popular version is the one that just says Battlefield Forge in the main deck and Needle Spires in the sideboard to bring in alongside your, your four drops, like your Gideons. And is it just like the technology is changing? Like, the Needle Spires plus Gideon Plan is so good against Control that it actually makes those white human decks, like, reasonable against black-white. Like, I looked at a bunch of the green-white decks, and it didn't seem like they had better plans for, like, Crypto with Right or anything like that. But I could see, like, the humans' resurgence kind of based on that. I think any form of, like, aggression getting on the battlefield and then pairing that with Gideon makes Gideon extremely devastating. If your opponent either stumbles and, like, their pinpoint removal lining up or they don't have an answer to Gideon, then... Gideon's going to deal them somewhere between like 7 and 12 damage. The game's probably just over. And even if they are able to contain that, the Needle Spires is definitely a nice complement to that strategy. If you can, you know, chip your opponent down a bunch, the Needle Spires can get in for 8 damage in one game. Yeah, and like that Gideon plan was what we used at the Pro Tour, you know, and I I think that plan was very good. I agree. So the the Needle Spires technology is definitely excellent against the Languish Control decks because they have to tap out for Languish. And if you're getting up to five mana and boarding in all these lands, it's easy to get in a hit with the Needle Spires because normally the human decks had a problem with reach against the Control decks. And now that they have this technology of just having a land that can kill you makes a, makes a big difference. So three green-white decks in the top eight of Manchester, two in top eight of Minneapolis. It won both tournaments. 
Uh, and then there's like just kind of a smattering of normal stuff, like two banned companies, which I guess is kind of strange because, you know, that deck has kind of fallen out of favor too. One banned Crypto with Rights in the top eight of Manchester, one Blue Red Eldrazi, and one Grixis Control. Also worth noting that Raph Levy won the tournament with his green-white deck that had two Chandras in his main deck that he could only cast with Oath of Nyssa. Yeah, when I first saw that, I, I literally thought it was just a an error. I, I find that really hard to believe, to be completely honest. I don't know. It's It seems kind of great to me. Like, the French guys, especially Raph, I think Raph is just, like, a little bit off the beaten path. And he's, he, like, he is a person that I'm not surprised to see doing something like this. Just because, like, he, he likes those little quirks, you know? And it's just something that, like, people are never going to see coming that could make it good. You know, like, against a lot of Chandra decks, people are just like, okay, I have to get, like, my thing up to four toughness so that at least, like, you know, use all the loyalty on Chandra to wipe my board. Or if they don't want to do that, then I can attack their Chandra and kill it. And against this deck, I can totally see people just, like, playing normally and just, like, putting a bunch of, like, three toughness things in play. And then he just, like, has this surprise Chandra that just destroys them. It's kind of like playing Mage Act Tragic Arrogance, but it has, like, way more upside because it's this actual, like, unbeatable threat if you can get it on the right, you know, board state. All throughout the Swiss, I'm sure he just absolutely shocked and dominated people with it. And again, Chandra is just a super fast clock. I mean, I can imagine, like, end of turn, playing Avacyn, untapping, playing Chandra, attacking for, what's that, 10 already? Just two cards? So Yeah, and it's, it's like, that's the turn where they could have languished you or whatever, right? Like, they could have swept your board and then just got attacked for 10? Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds good. The thing that I'm concerned about is, like, you basically have four sources to cast this card, but at the same time, like, you know, you, if you draw that card, like, you get a little bit closer to finding the Chandra, too, so it's, like, a little bit more likely that they come together, kind of, like, licking sticks, basically. When I was playing green-white a lot, some of my sideboard plans involved me ending up with a bunch of spells, and then I would have to shave some Oath of Nissas, which I, I really didn't like doing. I thought Oath was one of the best cards in the deck, but... To facilitate those sideboard plans, I, I felt like I just kind of had to shave some oaths because they would just miss too often. And Raph kind of like pigeonholes himself into having to keep them as long as he's keeping it in Chandra's. I mean, it's certainly possible that he could just, you know, cut them after game one. I mean, what do you think about the fact that because you need Oath of Nyssa, you have to draw it, obviously, to cast Chandra Flame Caller. Like, the fact that you might be oathing into your Chandra and that kind of, like, gives it away to your opponent. Do you think that's something that yeah, that is true, makes I it guess. worse? I don't know. It all depends on what you're trying to do with the card, right? Like, if it is this thing that you want to kind of be a secret and you want to take them by surprise ideally and maybe just, like, rat their board or, like, have this six power in haste that they weren't expecting or whatever. Or you just want to play it because it's a good card and it doesn't matter if they know that you have it. Because I imagine, like, by the time the tournament's in, like, round 12, round 13, people are like, Raph has Chandra in his deck. You know, like, that is a thing that people would talk about. So at some point, the surprise element is just gone anyway. And especially once you're in top eight, like your opponents have your deck list before each each game. So I imagine the surprise was probably not there for long. But there's the plus mind game, you know. Once people know you have the Chandra in game two, game three, they aren't necessarily going to know whether you kept it in or you boarded it out. Yeah, and are they going to are they gonna aggressively go after your Oath of Nisses with their Dramokas commands? You know, like yeah. that's another talking point. <laughs> I mean, it could be entirely possible that he'll like shave the Chandras and the Oath of Nisses just to like jam in some spells or whatever. Yeah, see, that's, that's one of those things where it's, just, it's like this little quirky thing that seems a little crazy, but he won the tournament. And that's kind of what you have to do to win a tournament is like you... You know, there's basically 20% of, of people playing green-white tokens in day two, and he was the one guy that won, and he had this quirk in his deck, and I feel like that probably gave him some percentage points somewhere, you know? Definitely. It's also worth noting that, like, other than, I mean, Naya Midrange plays one or two copies of Chandra usually, but there, there's not actually a deck that's able to protect Chandra properly. Like, Grixis Control might have, like, a Dark Dwellers or a Flipped Jace or something like that, but just having actual blockers for Chandra and letting her snowball out of control is not something we've seen in this fan form every month. Yeah, that is very true. So Green-White Minneapolis, or GP Minneapolis, I'm looking at Green-White tokens still. Uh, GP Minneapolis, also kind of the same thing. Uh, a couple Green-White tokens, a White-Black control, and then five human decks? Like one one basically boss humans. Uh, this, this is like... Max McVetty's deck, as played by Max McVetty. You know, he, he won the Invitational <laughs> before it was actually Boss Humans, but I'm just going to call it that because I know that Boss would love that. And an actual red-white human deck that had, like, Abbots and Bushwhackers and stuff. But Max had the Battlefield Forge and Needle Spires plan, and then three Bant human decks that Yuya has kind of worked to popularize. So what is y'all's take on that? Is it really fair to call this deck a human's deck? I mean, obviously, it's it's utilizing Thali's Lieutenant, but it's really just more of an evolution of Band Company, right? 
Right. I mean, it is not a traditional human deck. You know, it is not 11 one-drops or 15 one-drops or whatever. You know, he just has like three Thraven Inspectors. It is basically a band company deck that has a different angle of getting value. Right. I, I mean, like, Band Company was already utilizing several humans, Dustwatch Recruiter, Tireless Tracker, Jace Friends Project, I guess, if you want to count them. You know, it just incidentally, you get to throw a few more humans in your deck, and then you suddenly have this very explosive possibility of just, like, collect a company and do a Thalys Lieutenant or two and just dealing your opponent a million damage. So before Pro Tour, whatever this is, Shadows over Innistrad, the last one, I was looking at Leagues, and there was a guy uh, with a screen named Fast Fake who I had seen a few other times. I think his most notable thing was building the Eldrazi deck that Frank Lepore took to top eight of PT Oath. Yeah, that was the black one. He was like monocolorless though. I mean, he had colored stuff, but he he just had like, his spells were four relics and two scrabbling claws. But anyway, so he he had 5-0'd a few leaves with that deck. And I was like, okay, this deck's pretty sweet. Like I'm, I'm going to file that name away for later. And then leaning up to PT Shadows... I see this guy again, 5-0-ing some leagues with this banned human deck that actually looks very similar to this. And I ended up like kind of like internet stalking him and trying to find him on Twitter and stuff and started talking to him a little bit about his deck. He was like, Shadows was his first pro tour and he was definitely playing the deck in the tournament. He was not affiliated with the team. So he was just testing on Magic Online. And I talked to him a little bit about the deck and like played a couple leagues with it and stuff. And I actually thought I might play that deck because it looked pretty sweet and it was kind of doing... All the stuff that I wanted to do leading into that Pro Tour where I thought the sweepers were going to be very prevalent. And I played uh, white-blue humans and had been playing that deck, but it had a lot of trouble like recouping card advantage after you got languished. And his deck just didn't really care because he had like Den Protector and Collected Company and Tireless Tracker and stuff. And the sideboard plan of just having like Den Protector plus Negate was very, very good against those decks. And then he played in the Pro Tour. He was doing well for a while. Uh, I don't know exactly how he finished up, but then I think it was GP Tokyo where the Naya deck won. Maybe I'm getting my tournaments confused, but uh, Yuya played the deck there and he went 13-2 and did not make the top eight. But since then, that deck has just been like all over Magic Online. I think it makes a lot of sense too. Like previously, like Band Company in a less defined format, things like Bounding Crisis uh, paired with a Reflector Mage, you could just like out-tempo your opponents. But when the metagame's a little bit more established, people are starting to lean on like sweepers more. Instead of like these like tempo cards in your company deck, it's better just to have these like raw power cards. And then post-board, you can kind of focus your deck towards, like you said, like the Gate plus Dead Protector and various other card advantage elements like Tireless Tracker. Dustwatch Recruiter, Thraven Inspector. It makes it really difficult for your opponent to line up properly against you when they're trying to like use pinpoint removal. Yeah, I definitely agree. And this this deck seems pretty good because it, it is basically the evolution of Band Company. Like you can go in one direction, I think, with the Cryptolith rights and play this creature base that is certainly a, a lower power level. You know, you have things like Lone Dryad and Elvish Visionary and stuff. And this deck is like you have a higher power level, you have Lamholt Pacifist and Thalia's Lieutenant just trying to like beat people down. I guess you're just kind of assuming that like they're not going to have as many blockers or uh, your creatures are just going to be bigger because before with Band Company, it was like their creatures were like a little bit more in the middle of the road, but they had a lot of ways to actually clear your blockers out. And then this deck doesn't really rely on that. It just has bigger creatures and some card drawing stuff. So outside of the top eights, the, the rest of the tournament looked pretty normal, or tournaments, except for in 25th place, we have a little Martin Mueller brew that I think Andrew Brown is well qualified to talk about. <laughs> this, this seems like a very Andrew deck. Yeah, this is a sweet one. So the core of the deck is he has 24 islands and engulf the shore. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to set up where he gets Jace's Sanctum to make everything cost less. And then he uses Day's Undoing with Part the Water Veil to essentially take an extra turn and then play Day's Undoing and then reset his draw. And after that, he can play Rise from the Tides. It looks like Rise and Part are his only win conditions. Boredom, I think, is a pretty big one. Boredom's also <laughs> a good one. <laughs> so he'll either awaken part the water veil or play rise from the tides get a bunch of guys and then eventually just kind of chip away at his opponent but i, I do think boredom will be the number one win condition for this deck yeah so you have jesus sanctum which is three u enchantment instant sorceries cost one less whenever you cast an instant or sorcery scry one so it's kind of doing double duty both like reducing the cost of your somewhat expensive spells and also just giving you Kind of like this engine type thing to keep your, your cards just like cantripping into each other. Prism Ring, I guess, was like a pretty big find for him where he's just like, well, I want to play a bunch of islands and blue cards anyway. So 
now I have this card that just like gains me a bunch of life and you know it makes it so you don't get like burned out by various things pour over the pages which is like a pretty big combo with Jace's Sanctum you can actually end up like making mana if you have enough Sanctums uh, Days Undoing with Part the Water Veil you just get to like use your seven cards before they do which is pretty absurd not that this deck is like all that proactive or anything but you know it's still pretty nice to not give them seven cards and then have to pass the turn I do like his sideboard a lot though if you look at his main deck um, not every card is going to be good in every matchup so he has a lot relative to the matchup he's going to have a lot of air in his deck and he can fill that out with Negates, Invasive Surgery, or Jaystrom's Rodigy and Thing in the Ice. And I also like that one Displacement Wave for the human decks. <laughs> so yeah, Martin Mueller got 25th. Upon seeing this deck, Ross Merriam declared that he must be the best player in the universe to go 12-3 and three <laughs> at a Grand Prix. I'm not, I'm not sure that's even really true, though, because it's like, even if you're a really good player, like, how much can you leverage that with a deck like this? The surprise factor for this deck is really big for Martin, just because the cards are so awkward that playing against this perfectly just sounds nearly impossible if you're playing against it for the first time against a player of Martin's skill. Yeah, but I, I don't think that he necessarily leverages his skill all that much, like... I, I guess he's going to play his deck perfectly, you know, and that certainly helps, but he's not, like, outplaying anyone. Like, all the outplaying that happens is just, like, you know, you don't know that your opponent has Hydro Lash in their deck, for example. I think the big part here is that, like, you, you get to optimize your operations, because that's all this deck is, is operations. Right. This is this is very similar to, like, the, the Sphinx's Tutelage deck, right? Yes, this is pretty much this, the same idea. So, Majors, uh, you want to go to Atlanta next week and play some prison with me, or what? I I, I have plans again. I, Dude! Where, where, is like, where, where is, like, Martin Mueller's, like, man, I have this free GP because I have tons of points and it doesn't matter. I'm just going to take this nonsense deck and top 32 the tournament with. Whereas, you know, we do nothing and don't attend the tournament. What, what, are you, what are you doing, man? This is the worst time to start this podcast. <laughs> I have a bachelor party. So I have a, a reasonable excuse. Okay, okay. I mean, I did have a wedding last weekend, which is why I think I didn't go to Minneapolis. But then I had the RPTQ that was relatively close. So, like, that was kind of my excuse, you know. And then I got to go to my friend's wedding, which was good. But, dude, I, I have no excuse for this weekend, man. I'm back at it. SCG Tour, baby. Let's go. Are you going to play this deck? No, God, no. I, I might do a video <laughs> on this deck. I might do a video on this deck tonight, though. The double standard. Come on. You know what my favorite part about this deck is? Is that the quote-unquote win condition is the one rise from the tides, but you're going to repeatedly shuffle your graveyard back into your deck with Days Undoing. I, I don't think it's a big deal because you, you're you probably just going to reload your graveyard very easily. So I, I, I agree with that. I just think from the like boredom, torturing your opponent perspective, it's great. No, it is, it is definitely good. I mean, you can kick apart the water veil. That might kill some people. I do want to know what happens when your Rise from the Tides gets Transgress the Minded. You have part the Water Veil. Yeah, uh, I know, but in, in the decks that have, you know, main deck Transgress the Mind, they're going to have removal spells for your part the Water Veil token. Yeah, I guess I guess if they just always keep removal open, there's nothing you can really do. They can, like, Days Undoing to the point where you have seven land in your hand or like just hope that you draw seven land like that type of thing yeah i guess so but part the water veil does exile itself yeah you have limited copies of that certainly that's what i'm saying like you have to like days undoing hope that they draw nothing and then cast part the water veil and like try and go off from there i think you just really have to hope that your rise does not get transgressed or or like maybe it won't get transgressed because they assume you have more than one in your deck i don't know it does sound like an interesting puzzle though what do you guys think about the mirror where you have to dance around each other's invasive surgeries? It's a pretty does big invasive game. surgery exile? It does, right? It does. If, wow. it, if it's uh, deliriumed. I'm off it, man. I'm off it. It's, it's, it's right. pretty tough for this deck to actually get delirium, though, isn't it? Or is it impossible? Well, no. I mean, they have instant sorcery land enchantment artifact, right? Yeah. Oh, you can pour so, a discard. So nagging, nagging thoughts helps, right? Four of the pages. Oh, sure. Yeah, that one helps, too. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah, you can figure it out. Hope, hope they negate your your sanctum or whatever, or hope that they don't. I don't know which is better, you know? Probably not. You probably want that thing on the battlefield pretty much every game. All right, well, let's say we're not going to play this prison deck. What should I play this weekend? I mean, I'm, I'm particularly partial to green-white tokens, and it's, you know, doing well. Um, I'm not sure, you know, what build you should do, or maybe, you know, you can move towards nine mid-range because you have additional planeswalkers, which kind of inadvertently wrath basically showed off that it's very good. Yeah, I do like Radiant Flames too, or at least I did when the Crypto of the Right decks were big. I like the idea of that, but I also didn't feel like I needed that playing Green-White. I also like how Green-White is more aggressively slanted. 
Uh, I basically like the deck that I played in the box. Like, I would change maybe 10 cards or whatever, but it also looked like a lot of people kind of adapted the, the stuff that Sigrus and I did for the mocks too, where, like, they have some Evo Leaps main, maybe, or, like, some Den Protectors to go with their Evo Leaps. Like, people are, are kind of down on Secure now. I think it was, like, 50-50 whether or not they actually had Secure main deck or not. And at the very least, they had, like, the Leaps and the Den Protectors in the sideboard, which I think is just great. Uh, going forward on this weekend, I would recommend to you, Jerry, to play some sort of Grixis or Black-White deck that just has a specific plan to go over the top of Green-White. Okay, so here's the thing, Andrew. Whenever you're recommending a deck, you should remove all biases. If you are recommending a deck to me, you should recommend the deck that you think that I would perform the best with. Jerry, I think you should play Green-White. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the, the issue here is I don't actually think that... The control decks, if green-white is operating on all cylinders, can actually go over the top of it. You can just embarrass people with evolutionary. Yeah, I, I love Leap. I love having Stone for their Kalidus and just making sure that they never get any traction. Because, like, they're actually not that good at killing you. As long as you can, you know, always have, like, Secure or Evison for their Chandra and, like, always just, like, kill their Kalidus when, when they play it. Kill their Jace. And just going long, eventually you're going to beat them. Because, like, your card advantage is just much better than theirs. All right, fine, fine. Play green-white. <laughs> green-white it is. Super boring, but I'm in there. Watch the metagame shift again somehow, and just everyone is hating on green-white. No one is playing it because they're like, oh, man, it was very obvious that green-white was not the deck for this weekend, and I'm just like, I'm the fish, right? But that does give a lot of stock to the four-color Cryptal with right deck if everybody thinks green-white is just going to be continually dominant just because it's such a powerful deck. I mean, if, if you've ever watched a match between Cryptolithrite and Green-White, then it's just a... I mean, Michael, you you played you played the matchup in the top eight. You got embarrassed, right? Embarrassed is a strong word. I I, I tried my hardest, Andrew. I'm just going to put it that way. All right, all right. I, I was watching. I was rooting for him. He drew 14 land and six spells, seven spells, I guess, if you want to count the Oath of Nyssa that, like, found a planes and put two Declaration of Stones on the bottom of his deck. And I still... I, I was in that game. I had a shot. He messed up, though. That, that's the only reason you were in the game. So that, when we talk about true. matchups, or when I talk about matchups at least, I like to refer to, like, what the true matchup is. I think that is more important if we're trying to find the actual truth. So, like, what happens when uh, someone who is very adept at playing the Cryptolith right deck, whichever version you want to play, is playing against someone playing green-white who, like, knows their green-white, and both players know the matchup and have a plan for that matchup? Then what happens? Like, I think Bant was beating up on green-white because for the longest time, like, the green-white players were just not respecting that deck or, like, they didn't have any experience against it because it was, you know, kind of like this new breakout thing and they hadn't played against it very much. But now, even, you know, Sigurus and I were, like, just, like, going over different options and, like, the different ways we could actually use to beat the deck and, like, what we thought our best plan was and stuff. And we ended up, like, flip-flopping on a bunch of different stuff over, like, you know, do, do we want Planeswalkers? Like, do we want to actually try and kill them or do we just want to, like, kill all their stuff? And I think we eventually settled on a pretty good plan, which is, like, you have to pressure them and just, like, basically keep Displacer off the table. And I think I only like Tragic Arrogance against them on the draw, which I think is just this thing that people were like, oh, it's always good against them, but it's not really. It, it's stuff like that, you know, like, what is the true matchup? How is it actually going to play out if both players know what they're doing and are prepared? That is a better way to think about it. And, Michael, I apologize. That tournament, first time on three buys, I won 1-4. So, you know, kudos to you for doing well on that one. I was the one who was embarrassed. Oh, three oh, I, buys, I didn't, man. I didn't take it personally at all. Man. Yeah, I think but, Michael um, had an okay weekend. Yeah, I, I, will, I would never complain about how that went. For, for the record, though, I, I I think your analysis of Tragic Arrogance is a little flawed. Like, even, so, so I agree with you that, generally speaking, the matchup should be about, you know, trying to force the aggression and keeping Displacer off the table. But, like, if your draw doesn't line up well, then Tragic Arrogance can, you know, reset you into a position where you can start leveraging a removal spell or two on a Displacer and actually starting to get aggressive. Yes, I agree completely. The issue is that when you're on the play, you have so few resources... And if you have a Tragic Arrogance in your hand, that makes it more likely that you don't have that aggression to go with your plan, which is why I don't like them. I think, like, just the fact that you have Arrogance in your deck means that you are going to need to have the Arrogance to just, like, keep parity against them. Whereas if you don't have Arrogance, it is more likely that you actually get to keep up with them. That analysis would make me believe that one or two copies on the play is correct, not cutting them entirely. I don't know. I just, I just don't want to draw them because I think it just messes up your hand too much. Sure, but you can make the same argument that, like, you know, you, you board in a bunch of removal spells and you're attacking them. And having a removal spell instead of 
being able to curve out on that specific turn is ineffective. It's, it's, it's less extreme because it's obviously it's a five mana spell and you're not able to like double spell on a key turn to both pull the head and remove a displacer or a key creature. But the, the point is like Tragic Arrogance just gives you an out. It is. It is an out, which is why I like it more on the draw too, because I think it's more likely that like when you're on the draw, you want to actually like pull that trigger on turn five. Whereas when you have arrogance on the play, it's it's like kind of even in question whether or not you want to cast arrogance. Like I've I've played against them where you know they have some slow draws where it's just like you're on the play and they're holding up collecting company mana, and it's like your arrogance doesn't do anything. So either you you don't have a five to play, or you wish that this was a cheaper spell so it could fill out your curve because you don't want to play it on that turn. Whereas on the draw, I think you actually do want to cast it there. It's, it's basically just like. If, if I had, like, Brainstorm in my deck or, like, you know, some sort of way to filter my draws, then I would probably have, like, two Arrogances in my deck. But since you can't really leverage that until, like, super late and the fact that, like, you have it means that, like, you're, you're not doing your plan A, it just makes me not want to have it. I don't know if that makes sense at all. No, no, it, it does. I think that when, when I was talking to Sigrus about this, he was, like, nodding along, like, yeah, dude, I agree with you. And then in the tournament, he was like, nah, man, you're crazy. And then he just, like, you know, did whatever he wanted to, which is fine. I Like, I get it. Like, it, it, is, it is this nice, like, safety blanket type of thing where it's like, oh, man, if they're getting out of control, I can just air against them and everything will be fine, you know? I, it, it's not even, like, a KO for them. Like, it does not beat them just straight up. If it were, then I would be more likely to have it in my deck, even despite all of its flaws, right? But I've, I've played several games where, like, they just rebuild after it, and it's like, it slows them down a lot, and it was certainly helpful, but it, it never KOs them. I mean, conceptually, I agree, but you have to be extremely confident to actually pull the trigger on having zero tragics in your, in your main on the play. I mean, I'm pretty confident. I'm going to be confident until I'm no longer confident, you know? like Point, point just, being, like, it makes sense for, for Mike to choose to have it. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I just thought it was funny the way it went down. Like, our, our, our mox test, I'm going to kind of go on a, a segue here. Like, our, our mox testing was pretty funny because we were talking about Modern, and he's like, I'm playing Jun, and I'm like, I'm playing this Jeskai Nahiri deck. And for a little bit, he was playing with the Nahiri deck, and then eventually he was like, nah, I don't like this deck that much. I'm going to start playing Jun. Like, how many cages should I play? How many Raging Ravines should I play? How many Maelstrom Pulses? Like, should I play a Pithy Needle? <laughs> like... Do you think I should have, like, an extra duress in my deck? It's like, dude, just stop. You know? Like, why are you trying to beat me? And, like, sure enough, I was the only person playing that deck in the tournament. Uh, but he was ready for me, you know? Uh, so, like, that was pretty funny. And then the green-white stuff where we're, like, talking about stuff, and I thought we were having a nice conversation. And then just, like, after the fact, he's like, yeah, I did, I did like, the exact opposite of what you told me to do, basically. I, I had so much fun. You know? It was just great. Like... It's one of those things that would maybe normally frustrate me with a normal person, but like Sigrus is just such a pleasant individual, and I had so much fun working with him that I just enjoyed it. But yeah, uh, I am I am down with with doing what I do until I have something that tells me that it is no longer correct. You know, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but uh, it's right, similar to my process. Okay, yeah, because like right now, it just it doesn't feel great whenever I have it on the play, and when I have it on the draw, it's it still has some of the same issues, but it is more likely to do the job that I set out to have that card do. So I'm more likely to actually want it when I'm on the draw. So I don't know. We'll see. My my point is, is like I think I have a reasonable plan against the Crypto Threat decks. If people are just like not playing those decks, like maybe I should test against the Bant Human deck. That is probably a very relevant matchup. And it seems like those decks are just kind of like cannibalizing the Crypto Threat decks. So yeah, I probably have to test that matchup a little bit. And if that one is bad, then I don't know what I'm gonna do. But probably leaning towards green white. Good choice. If anything, I I think the shifts in the metagame would propose Tragic Arrogance main being good again, just because you can bust up the mirrors and if humans are starting to get popular again. I don't think it's good in the mirrors though either. I think it's horrendous in the mirrors. Well I I don't know if we we should keep being on a tragic arrogance tangent, but I'm I'm just gonna disagree. That's acceptable. I've written about this a little bit. I don't think I got too in depth about it, but I feel the way I feel, and I think that this would mean that I would have a pretty good follow up article to like my last green white article if I played it this weekend. And uh, either things will go well or they'll go poorly, and either way I'll learn something. You know. Regardless, you have something to talk about. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to lock in green-white. Maybe I'll need to play against the Band Human deck, though. That's about it. Pretty comfortable, at least, against everything else. White-black did look good, though. I mean, Brad Brad got, like, ninth or 10th, and Cedric top 32'd on zero games with maybe one of the hardest decks to play in the format. He told me that he made a ton of mistakes and that the deck was just so good and so impervious to losing that he uh went 12 and 3 on zero games and only threw against good players and 
his own mistakes. Which is super impressive. Yes. It might be tied with the amount of impressive it is for Martin Mueller to 12-3 and with Modern Blue Prison, but... Uh, let's not get too crazy here. I, I do think White Black rewards, like, very solid ABC magic, and so if you just have that wealth of experience you can draw upon, then like, it's going to serve you well. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a little more controlly jund, right? You know, like... You have all the, the disruption and the removal and stuff, and your cards are very powerful, and you have a quick way to close the game. So it is pretty similar to that. You know, if you can just you know map out your turns to be as efficient as possible, get the most value out of your cards, and just you know turn the corner when you need to turn the corner, like you're going to do well. Uh, SCG Tour Atlanta this weekend. I will likely be there. I will likely play green-white. If I do not make day two, I will probably play Jeskai again in the Modern Classic. I think that about wraps that up, but that should be fun. And I guess we should just move on to uh, another positive topic, like cheating. <laughs> yeah, very positive topic. I, I don't know how, how in-depth you guys want to get. Basically, there was a high-profile player that was disqualified this weekend for basically kind of like going through his deck, looking at cards, moving them around, and then not sufficiently randomizing afterward. I guess t technically mana-weaving is the, the term for it. D stacking your deck. It wasn't exactly stacking, right? Because it's like... He didn't necessarily have, like, the perfect opening hand or whatever. You know, like, it wasn't, like, Steven Spec, right? Where he just, like, literally has the perfect seven. It was just, like, he is less likely to get mana screwed than others. You don't consider that stacking? Well, no, no, no. It, it, is. it is. It is cheating. I'm not saying it's not cheating. It is definitely cheating. I am just saying that, like, it was not as savage as some other folks. That's all. It's just changing the ratio of lands to spells. Is there a difference between levels of cheating? I mean, I, one cheat has to be similar to all cheats. You're, you're deceiving your opponent and you're making a mockery of the game, right? It should all be taken at the same face value. Uh, I, I do agree with that. I don't think the punishment should necessarily be the same. But I do, uh, I do have a, a hardline stance on cheating. Like, I am anti-cheating. If you are someone that I was previously an acquaintance to and you have been found to be cheating to some degree, like, I am probably not going to associate with you any longer. That sort of gives me, like, a little insight into your character and the other sort of things that you are capable of doing as a human being, and I don't want any part of that. So I, th I think we're on the same page. But as far as just, like, classifying things, I do think it is important to note... I, I don't know, like, maybe this is, like, the only thing that he has done. The, the player in question is uh, Fabrizio Antieri, for, for the record. And, like, he is, he is denied that, you know, that this was on purpose or whatever, this accidental thing. And his, his explanation I found to be somewhat lacking, very lacking, actually. I don't know if this is kind of, like, a look into, like, other things that he is capable of or, like, if, if this is, like, the only thing that he has ever done that is, like, dishonest or whatever. I have no idea. I don't know facts. I just know what happened, and it is very disappointing to me to have people who have that much success in that short of a time... And then people are like, oh, man, this guy's really good. Like, you know, people look up to this guy. They're like, oh, he won, like, five Grand Prix in two years or whatever. Like, th this guy is proof that, like, if I just work hard, I can go from, like, nothing to being a platinum-level pro. And then at some point you find out, like, this thing that they did that was dishonest, and then it just, like, calls into question everything. Well, again, I think you have to look at the past. Like, if you look at Jared Betcher and this, like, meteoric rise really really fast and then you know they just get caught and then everything goes right to the can you know i i think it's important to note here that like someone breaking out and doing great from you know being an unknown should not be indicative of foul play or anything like i don't think we should set that as an precedent here i i agree with that and that's that's one of the things that makes me very scared is that it's like, oh, yeah, like, obviously, let's, like, look back on the past, look at, like, the Betchers or whatever, and it's like, Fabrizio kind of had a run like that, too, and then this happens, and it's just like, okay, well, from now on, whenever, whenever anyone does well for two years in a row, like, we're just going to assume they're cheating, and I think that's messed up, because, like, you can also look at runs from various people, like, you know, Martin Juzia, Yuya Watanabe, Owen Turtonwald, just, like, specifically at the Grand Prix level, where it's just, like, it seemed like every weekend they were, like, top eating a Grand Prix, right? And it's like, it is not fair to just assume that those guys are also cheating because I'm, I'm like 99% certain they're not, right? Like these, these people are like clean to me. Like I know them very well. So I, I am very scared that that is going to be like the kind of mentality that people learn to or lean to when someone is just doing really well consistently. 
Well, I'm not saying that we should like have the witch hunt mentality whenever someone does well out of nowhere. I'm just saying that I've talked to Fabrizio before. Like, I'll admit it. I when Steven Speck got caught, I was actually staying with him at the Pro Tour. Over like talking with them and kind of understanding their theory, I kind of realized that how can these guys be doing so well when their like theory game or when they're talking about magic is just not quite there. But I guess that's like a personal personal basis. So I mean, I don't know where to put that. That does happen. Uh, I mean, I had I had similar conversations with Jared too. But like, I've also had like conversations with Seth, for example, where it's like Seth is like scarily smart and insane at magic but like sometimes like he has trouble like you know explaining his thoughts and it's just he is one of those people where i just want to get inside his head i want to know like how he processes information and and stuff like that and i don't think it's fair to say that like oh like this guy did not like completely wow me when i had a discussion with him and he's winning a bunch so like then i find it strange or alarming or whatever you know, some people just, like, can't communicate effectively, and I think that that is a certain class of player. Like, I, I could also, like, name name several names. Like, Brad Nelson's uh, brother is another one of those people where you watch him play a game of Magic, he plays perfectly, including doing, like, a bunch of, like, kind of crazy stuff that, like, you see it happen in the moment, and you're like, what the hell is he doing? But it all makes sense, like, three turns later, you know? And it's like, he is that good. But then at the same time, you try and talk to him about it. And I'm just like, yo, why, why'd you like make that attack? Or why'd you do this? And he's like, I don't know. And I'm just like, uh, okay. Like it is, it is clear that you are very gifted. Why can you not explain this? And I think those are just different skill sets. Yeah, definitely. But I think there, at, at some point you can sort of figure it out. But again, the line is very blurry and it's all based on like personal biases. So I, I don't know. I don't know where to put that. It's, it's a touchy subject. I mean, the, you can certainly say that there are yellow flags, but I, I, I would never point to one thing specifically as being a tell sign that someone is cheating. Right. I, th- I think you look back on, on things like Betcher and it's just like, oh man, like a lot of things like added up, right? You, you can do that for some people, but it's more of like a hindsight thing. I don't, I don't think it's fair to like go looking for those things to try and condemn certain people for for their actions or whatever, or whatever you perceive their actions to be. Like, I I just don't think that's fair. And I think it is really sad that it's like, whenever someone gets caught, you know, then it, it just makes everyone less hopeful about like the world and the future and stuff, because it's like, oh man, I really like this guy. He's playing cool decks. He's doing really well. Like he plays pretty well. He's like very charismatic. And, you know, I love watching his interviews and stuff. And then you find out like, oh, cheater. And it's like, why, why, why do I do this? You know, why even bother? And it just sucks. Yeah, going forward, I I think we just need to take a tougher line with cheaters and in general. Like anytime you see it at a Grand Prix or at a local store, just my normal process is, you know, tell the head judge, tell someone who's in charge and then try and make sure they're not tipped off about it and then just go about your business. I agree with that. I think step one is just calling a judge. You know, if if people are doing things that are not necessarily shady, but are just like kind of accidental mistakes on the game and stuff where it's like, you know, they're not maintaining the board state correctly or whatever. Just like call a judge, get them the warning. If it is an accident and it's not a big deal and it doesn't happen that often, then a warning on the record doesn't do anything, right? But over like months or years, if these warnings keep adding up because people are doing things like small things like that to gain advantages, then that will eventually like throw up some red flags. And I think that is the first or like, it is the first step and also I think the best way to just like catch these people. So yeah, if, if something happens, like call a judge. And this is one of those things where it is do as I say, not as I do, because I have definitely been pretty lax about this in the past because I always feel like, you know, my opponent's a nice guy. Like I don't, I don't need to get a judge involved because this thing is so minor, but like realistically in, in the big picture, these things do matter. And I'm trying to take a harder stance on that. I've also like not really shuffled my opponent's deck in like the last decade and i i have probably been getting got at various points and just had no idea and i i should probably just do that too but like to me it's just like i'm here to play magic uh if you are gonna go through like all this work to like cheat me i don't really care i'm gonna try and beat you anyway i think there is a camera match of me doing just that which is pretty great but yeah, I don't know. I should actually be working more to try and end this stuff than I am doing now. And I, I feel bad about it. You know, I'm part of the problem. So does anyone else have any thoughts on this? No, nah, I, I mean, like, I, I agree with most of what you said. Unfortunately, I am probably also a person that's easy to cheat against because I'm not super vigilant about calling judges on my opponents to give them warnings and, you know, things like that. I'm not really trying to pay attention to how they're shuffling my deck, but, you know, I should be. 
and it's, it's unfortunate that's the way it is, but I kind of agree with you that I kind of just want to play the games and it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, that that is what I'm there for. I certainly wish that we could just play Magic and everything would be great and, you know, we'd all be happy and have fun and stuff. But realistically, you know, like, this, this stuff is going on. Just It seems like every year someone gets caught and it's like some high-ish profile name and it, it just sucks. And it makes me wonder, you know, like how many people are actually doing it or trying to do it or whatever. And it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to say that there are a bunch of cheaters out there because I don't necessarily believe that to be the case. But at the same time, it's like, there are people, it is likely a very small number, but at the same time, it's like, these people are not going to get caught unless we do something about it and, and actually like accrue these warnings and stuff. And I do think that that is the best way to do it. But I, I agree. Like that, that is the best way to go about doing it. But on the flip side, like. I think that some people are hyper vigilant and they think that, you know, everyone is trying to be dishonest with them and that's just not a good way to go about tournament magic and living your life in general. So I strongly dislike that. I, I don't wanna like have to use all that mental energy just like watching my opponent and like trying to, you know, think of like all these paranoid ways that they could be like cheating me or whatever. It's just it's it's exhausting. Okay, well that one was fun. Fun topic. Right? Can we have a transition to something actually fun now? No no sarcasm, no joke? We could. I, I just want to say that, like, hopefully we just never have to talk about that topic on this podcast ever again. I do think it is important, but just never again, please. Kind of trying to wrap things up here, but this might take a while because we all like to talk. And last podcast, we introduced this game to Andrew, and Andrew is kind of, like, taking it a step further. He's got some questions for us, and I think they're pretty fun. So hit me. All right, Jerry T., what is your favorite deck that you've ever played? Uh, the decks that I used to enjoy playing were all pretty miserable, I think, to play against. But back then, I was not very cognizant that that was a thing. It was just, like, mostly focused on my fun and not really theirs. I would say the Time Spiral Block Mystical Teachings deck, specifically the one with Gaia's Blessing and very few win conditions. Lovely. Yeah. What card has won you the most money in Tournament Magic? Uh, I had to think about this for a while because I, I have a Pro Tour Top 8. I have some Invitational wins. Like, those are my big finishes. And the Pro Tour Top 8 happens to coincide with, like, a couple years previous where I was playing decks like Callblade and Delver. It's kind of like a boring answer, but I think it is Glacial Fortress. It was just, like, three seasons in a row where I just had, like, these busted blue-white decks. So next time I see you, I'm going to ask you to sign my Glacial Fortresses. I have the set of Glacial Fortresses that I used for, like, all of those years. It was, like, one of the few things that I didn't get rid of when I went to Wizards. And, like, two of them have, like, GP or PT stamps or whatever. And they're, like, kind of cool. And for a while, I was going to, like, you know, try and raffle them off or something. But I just, like, never got around to it. So now I just, like, still play with them, I guess. I don't know. It's, like, kind of weird. Sentimental but... value. You got to keep them. No. So, like, I, I thought that, like, I, I don't have a lot of sentimental value. It, it's kind of a sad story or whatever, but, like, I was very used to just, like, not having things or losing things when I was a kid. So I just, like, kind of taught myself to not get attached to things. And I feel the same way just about magic cards and, like, uh, to some degree about, like, decks and stuff, too. I can I can still try to answer those questions, you know, but it's it's never like, oh, I want, like, a framed piece of, like, glacial fortress art or whatever you know to remember all those happy times but i just don't care it's just like it's in the past it's over and done with but i thought other people might like them but then i also thought about it and just like based on my own biases i was like nah that's stupid people aren't gonna want them i want them you can have them you would i have a question are these are these glacial fortresses in question english or japanese they're english so i was slowly trying to get like japanese stuff back in the day but i wasn't working as hard as i am now so i like playing with foreign stuff which Again, is one of those things where, like, I'm now becoming way more cognizant of the fact that, like, that's kind of a dick move and I should not do that. So um, I'm trying to convince myself to just, like, make all my stuff English again because it's really annoying when you play in a modern tournament and you don't know what your opponent's card does and you can't read it. And, like, that's on me. That's my fault. So, yeah, I have, I have four English Glacial Fortresses. Two of them are stamped. I think they're from, like, different core sets or whatever, which is, like, another thing that OCD me would, like, try and fix, but whatever. All right, last question. What is your favorite draft archetype from the past five years? Uh, so we kind of got into this earlier. I don't know how deep you want me to go, but basically Metalcraft from Scars of Mirrodin. All right. Um, I will quote you from earlier. Sword of Body and Mind was really bad in my top eight draft deck. Yeah, that's accurate. Do you have any thoughts on this, Michael? Uh, I think it's utter nonsense because before the show, we went as deep as to 
go look up the coverage archive for the grandparent question. And I read written text coverage of Jerry handily defeating his opponent in the finals with sort of body and mind. So I'm going to call BS on this one. I also call BS on this. You have no response and I will continue to question Michael now. So Michael, oh, what is, yeah. what is your, brutal? <laughs> what is the most favorite deck you've ever played? Uh, this is kind of messed up because I also enjoy the Time Spiral Teachings deck, which was, I believe, called The Baron by Adrian Sullivan. That deck was super awesome and uh, one of the first decks that I like competitively PTQ'd with. But I'm going to try to come up with a unique answer and not be lame. Did you win any of those PTQs? I did not. Uh, I was. My, my excuse is that I was a very small child, but, you know, that's not really Fair. a good excuse. I think I... No, no, I didn't top eight any of them. Rough. Thanks, man. Thanks for rubbing it in. Man, no, I was just curious. I, I just, like, <laughs> couldn't lose with that deck, seriously. Like, I, I 10-0'd a PTQ. Uh, realistically, I went 9-1, and but I kind of got, like, a game loss that I shouldn't have. But, yeah, I'm not going to get into that too much. Uh, and then yeah, you're, I was you're, like, you're hijacking my question, man. Is, well, I'm, I'm giving you time to think of a real answer. I have my so real answer. I have okay, it. go ahead. Fine, I'm All done. Right. I also okay. did well at a Grand Prix, and it was a lot of fun. The end. Black, white, hand in hand from... Uh, Gosh, was it Champions and what was the other set? RTR. RTR, yeah. Because you had the Karoos. Yes, exactly. Uh, I, I believe the best version of the deck was like a Promise of Boonray Nantuko Husk deck. How much Magic Online were you playing? Literal zero. Oh, okay. Because I I played a ton. I was gonna I was gonna talk to you about the different versions. Like there there was like the Promise one. There was like the Plagued Rosalco, like Ravenous Rats one. Yeah, so that, then, that was me. That was me. So you were you were just like straight like. Olivier's deck from the BT or whatever? Yes, uh, I played it in a team-constructed event, which fed Charleston, which is the first PT I qualified for. I went XO in the Swiss with Hand in Hand, and our team qualified. Dope. And uh, I had some really strong innovations. Like, I believe I played three Ravenous Rats and only three Umazawa's Jite, which, to be fair, I believe Olivier only played three, so that wasn't completely on me. But, uh, yeah, that, that Just please, was, t- was please tell nice. me that one of your teammates had the other Jite in their deck somewhere. <laughs> I believe it was in our zoo sideboard. Okay, that's acceptable. That's fine. All right, all right. Next question. But in reality, probably no. Oh, God. All right, Michael. What card has won you the most money in Tournament Magic? I definitely don't have, like, a, a hard answer like Jerry's because, well, first of all, his was a cop-out because it's a land and that's lame. It but, is. It's really bad. It's really bad. But uh, I believe it's Xenagos the Reveler, the 2RG Planeswalker from a couple years ago. Basically played red-green decks that entire Pro Tour season. I, I top 16 two PTs with Xenagos and played it in a bunch of GPs. So pr- pretty fond memories of Xenagos the Reveler, Porphyros, God of the Forge various nonsense gruel decks it's kind of what i was about it's a better answer than jerry's all right last question yeah. what is your favorite draft archetype from the past five years so i also did some research before we started this podcast and i was able to find the very small draft guide that i wrote my friends uh, who were attending the original gp vegas modern masters one for like a various like grixis stamp and thought mind funeral decks in modern masters draft i played a, a ton of magic online and definitely had a lot of fun playing those decks and you know had like pick orders down and even like how to transition to other archetypes if you know the, the cards aren't coming so i had a lot of fun with that all right it's a pretty good answer uh do you do you have good answers for your own questions i didn't really think about it uh all right uh favorite deck i've ever played Definitely cop-out answer here, but blue-black control from Khan Standard with two Pearl Lake Ancients as your only win condition. Because he won the Grand Prix, folks. Yeah. We should, we should like, build you some Psychotog decks or something. I know you're young, but the decks were so much better back then, and they were so much more fun. I, sorry. Dude, man. I knew somebody in Atlanta that has a, a box of proxied top 8 PT and Worlds decks. And just, like, picking two decks randomly from that and battling it out is super fun. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, my next question, what card is winning the most money? Probably Vile Aggregate, just because it was in the Blue-Red Eldrazi deck, and I also had one copy in my first draft deck. Nice. nice. It was doing double duty, all formats, Vile Aggregate. Did you play with the stamped one in, in your constructed deck? No, I wasn't that deep. That's a pun. Yeah, so is calling sort of body and mind unplayable. Favorite draft that archetype. Sucked. Favorite <laughs> draft archetype of mine. I gotta think about this. Okay, so M14 Limited, if you guys remember, was all about divination and opportunity, right? I got to skip that one. Lucky. Anyways, I really liked the uh, white reg 
aggro deck with really bad creatures. Oh, I remember you telling me about this. Yeah, my first best Grand Prix finish ever was top 16 at a sealed Grand Prix with this. And I won my first pod again that was like stacked with, I think, three to four Capuchin Knights in my deck and multiple Divine Favors in the main deck. So I was just going to town on people playing Divination. And I was just beating them up. That is that is so not you, but it, it is also so you. What is Capuchin Knight? Oh, it's a delight. It's a 1W, 1-1, and you can pay 1W to give it plus 1, plus 0, and it has first strike. Dear God, that is not great. It's the Abyss, man. Yeah, it's it's the Abyss. It's it's great when they're playing nothing, and then they just play Divination, and then they play, like, Gravedigger. It's it's great. So 2-3 first striker was just the Abyss in that format, is what you're saying? Uh, It was the Abyss. The thing about Andrew that people might not realize is that, like, he he is the control guy. He likes to dirtle so much, but then in Limited, he is just, like, hyper-tight aggressive. And I love the fact that in, in Constructed, he kind of refuses to do this, but for Limited, he was just like, oh, I'm going to draft this awesome beatdown deck and beat up on all these morons playing control. Just, like, not realizing the irony, I think. Uh, to be fair, I do like the extreme ends of the spectrum. I played a, a Tarka Red at the Battle for Zendikar Pro Tour. I did go 2-5, though. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, I bet you didn't have a lot of fun, and I bet it's because you didn't find a good control deck. All of the above are true. not going to deny it. <laughs> All right. So now to the real question game. Are we just going to call this the game? I feel like that is completely fine. All right, all right. I'm okay with that, but I, I agree we have to decide, like, right now. We'll call it the game game. Sure. The, the GG, if you will. Sounds good. Sounds good. Jerry... I know that Michael looks really great. How often do you think Michael looks at himself in the mirror every day? Just like for pure vanity purposes or just like, you know, when he's brushing the teeth? Like, do I also have to factor those in? I would just go for pure vanity. Uh, I, th- I think it's actually zero. Really? All right. I guess I was I, off. I don't, even, I don't even know how to answer this because like if I truly was being vain, then wouldn't I be so oblivious that I wouldn't be able to answer this question correctly? No, that's not true. Like, for for example, uh, Kibler is vain, and I think at this point Kibler knows what that means, and he is willing to talk about that. I don't think I do, but now I'm going to be really paranoid and think about it. All right, I'll be watching. Don't worry. Yeah, I, I I check my appearance to like make sure it's like what I deem to be fine. But like, is that vain? I don't actually know if that's inherently vain. Uh, I think that there is a less strong word than vain for that. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I just, like, leave the house most of the time without, you know, checking my appearance or whatever, because I just don't care. I know that I'm showered and, like, kind of brush my hair in the direction I want it. Maybe I'll put on a hat or something, and my clothes are clean. You know, like, that's all I care about, necessarily. I don't know. I just, I, I thought that, like, I was under the impression that you did not spend a lot of time on your hair. It was just, like, naturally great. That, that is true. I can confirm that. I do not really use product or anything. Yeah, so I was pretty sure I knew that. So then at that point, it was just like, well, you know, if he's not even, like, doing anything, then I just don't imagine that he's just, like, staring at himself in the mirror and just going, like, you are great. I don't know. For some reason, I just really saw Michael looking at himself and thinking, man, I'm so great. Do you think maybe that you're projecting, Andrew? <laughs> Let's move on to the next question. <laughs> Michael, we all know Jerry loves talking. What magic slang does Jerry abuse way too much? Okay, all right. So I would say that it actually depends on Jerry's mood. Every once in a while, he can get kind of, uh, you know, kind of hyper and manic, and he might say the same joke repeatedly for, let's say, a six-hour car ride straight. But as far as, like, one in particular, I I don't, I don't really think he does that. I, I would say the answer is gas. Yeah, but, like... I don't know, gas is just kind of fun to say. Yeah, but you're, that means that you're biased because you also like to say it. That doesn't mean that I don't say it too much. Okay, sure, I, I buy that. That's probably true. So the correct answer would be gas. I think correct. so. I don't know. Uh, I'm not even sure what joke you're referring to. I'm, I'm assuming it's like the netcaster spider thing, but... Uh, th- that was a pretty good one. I was, it was mostly the uh, GGBG thing. Oh, no, that was Tom, too. That was, or, well, Cho, Tom and Cho. No, I'm not saying that, like, other folks weren't, like, perpetuating the problem, but, you know. I thought I was, like, the third least offender. It is, it's basically just, like, you know, someone someone extends the hand, and they're like, good games, man. And then someone's like, no, they were bad games. <laughs> this is a thing that happens online, most likely. You know, like, people are like, GG's, and then someone's like, no, BG's. 
it got kind of out of hand because like Tom's cat's named Bijou. So he was like Jiju, and I was like, no, Bijou. <laughs> nobody else is gonna find funny, and we just sound stupid. But it was yeah, you know, you, you yeah, gotta find ways to pass the time. But yeah, anything else? Any closing thoughts? Uh, what? So, Michael, you're going to a, a bachelor party or something this weekend, right? I am. I'll be in uh, New Orleans this weekend, so it should be a lot of fun. Never been to that city. Okay, Andrew, you just have another weekend off? Uh, I had originally registered for Grand Prix Costa Rica, but because of my pro point situation, I chose to not book the flight and get a refund. Pretty reasonable. Uh, I almost went until I got my point in Charlotte, so... How does that work as far as, like, giving away the slot? I don't know. Um, I, I heard a bunch of different things at first that they were not transferable, and then there was, like, a cutoff until you could get a refund, and then past that you couldn't get a refund... And then someone said that they were transferable, and I, I don't know. But yeah, I All guess right, well, I'm going to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Me, Tom Ross, maybe Todd, Brad probably won't go. Uh, maybe maybe some BBD, some Dizzler action. Ross Miriam. Yeah, I'm sure Ross wants to go. Uh, in what capacity is Cedric going to be there? Is he he going to is be- going to be playing. It's Andrew and uh, CBM. Yeah, so we, we probably have to take two cars then. we got a nice little squad. But all right, I think that's it. Second episode, I think we're doing all right, guys. The The feedback has been mostly positive, which I've been pretty excited about. Uh, I'm working on getting a website up, getting this on iTunes. Uh, s- some other people suggested, like, Stitcher, MTG Cast. I'm working on doing all that stuff. I am not, like, mechanically inclined or whatever. I'm not very smart. I, like, the, these computers, like, came out a little too late for me. I'm just, like, behind all these, like, super smart kids. But, yeah, this is this has been my job, and it's been kind of a struggle. But I'm, I'm working on it. I'm getting there, and I want to have, you know, like, the RSS feed. I want people to be able to download this and listen to it. Andrew discussed maybe doing, like, a video version of the podcast at some point, which I think sounds pretty cool. So I think that's going to do it for episode two. I'm Jerry Thompson here with Michael Majors, Andrew Brown, saying thanks for watching, and that's game. That's the game. Game. <laughs>